Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. Today's guest is Morin Oluwole, the head of luxury at Facebook and Instagram. Born and raised in Nigeria, she moved with her family to the United States, where she studied at Stanford and Columbia universities and became a business consultant before joining Facebook in 2006, long before it was the world-domineering platform it is today. An outspoken advocate for the advancement of women in the tech industries, she spoke to me about how she manages her digital consumption, changing attitudes to diversity in the luxury fashion industry, the challenges of dealing with fake news, and her favourite secret Facebook group. Maureen, hello. Hello. Welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. It's so nice that you've managed to come to Five Carlos Place and you saw Maisie's Cafe, which we had in the attic on the fifth floor. I love Maisie's Cafe. You know Isabella. <laughs> I love Isabella. Hi, Isabella. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Isabella. Exactly. Capoteca Galliotta, I exactly. think is her surname. Capici know- Galliotta. <laughs> oh, you say it much better than me. So yeah, no, it's really great to have you on the show. And before we started talking, I want to talk to you about Facebook, obviously, and all that kind of thing. But also, I'm really interested to get a flavor of what your childhood was like. Mm. You grew up in Lagos in Nigeria. I did, indeed. So I've had a bit of a varied and diverse experience in life. As you mentioned, I was born and raised in Lagos, Nigeria. Um, and I had a lovely childhood. I had a lovely childhood um, in Lagos with my mom and dad. And I have one younger sister. We're very close. Um, and what I remember are just a few aspects, which I think are very interesting um, in terms of family. I was very close to my family and still am, um, especially with my uh, grandfather, so my mother's father. For me, he was really the person that showcased what was possible in life because he came from absolutely nothing, grew up in a village in Nigeria, uh, ended up schooling here in London, actually, and went back to Nigeria to become a Supreme Court judge. And so he had an amazing life and really had this global experience, which really inspired me to take risks in my own life as well. And you had a good education, I I believe. Yeah, I had a great education. Actually, it was uh, between Nigeria and London quite a bit. So I know London very well and I love it. And I have uh, family here. Um, So I went to what we call primary school and secondary school in Nigeria with the uniforms and, you know, very uh, Anglophone um, in the way that the education system worked. And your parents, did they work? Yes, my parents, so they were both lawyers. And so they're both lawyers. Um, my mother was lawyer, a lawyer at an insurance uh, firm. And my father was more into, um, he was a first lawyer and then um, became a senator in Nigeria. So he was more on the political side. And this podcast is all about things that you find inspiring that will ultimately make it into the cabinet in the attic that I showed you earlier. And I was wondering what was the first thing that you wanted to share with us? Yeah, the first thing, so I'll 
speak about my grandpa again because again he was really an impactful person for me it might be a little bit too big to fit into the into the cabinet but uh, what i still have unfortunately he's no longer with us but what i have is one of his suitcases that he used when he traveled around the world to asia to india to the us to latin america and it has his initials on it and he always uh, put his initials on everything that he owned and so that's something that I keep. I don't even know what brand the suitcase is. It doesn't even matter. But I still kept it because this um, notion of exploring the world and having the freedom freedom to learn new cultures, to uh, have new experiences, he was the one that really instilled that in me. That's so lovely. And also, you, and, and since growing up, you've obviously spent a lot of time traveling the globe. What took you to America? What took us to America? Well, um, quite concretely, uh, my family, we won, a, there's a program, it's a visa program that permits um, a certain number of people each year in, um, in African countries to be permitted to live in the U.S. And so that was something that my mom, my mom really wanted my sister and I to have this experience. And so it's um, when the opportunity came, it was almost a no brainer for her. But for me personally, I actually didn't realize that we were moving permanently away How from Nigeria and so at that point I, th I think it was 11 or 12 or so and and so I understood you know there are lots of bags packed and you know we're leaving the country but it wasn't necessarily as clear to me which is maybe normal that this was a new life that I was going to be kicking off and especially at that age you have your friends yes you've already put down roots exactly friends and family most importantly because if you think if I think about it now, my family were across, you know, three, four continents. My mom and sister live in uh, California and San Francisco, San Jose area. I have family that lives here in London, which I'll actually be seeing while I'm here. I live in Paris, I have family in Nigeria and also family in South Africa. So we're really quite on different opposites corner of the corners of the world. But we try to to as much as possible to see each other and stay connected. Where in the US did you move to? I moved to we moved to California. So we moved directly to California, to San Jose, California, to be precise, um, because we had family there at that time. And I loved living in California. When I was in California, I was really happy. And I went to college at Stanford, which was a dream for me. I remember the first time I went to visit Stanford, um, I drove up what is called Palm Drive. So you have the scenic view, you have palm trees on your left and right, which are imported from some tropical location. And you drive up and then you see the uh, Stanford Church in front of you. So it's like this visage, just this image. Um, and I remember the first time I went to Stanford, I, I think I was 16 years old, and I said, I want to go to college here. And you did. And I did. <laughs> so you did a, your BA and MA at Stanford. Yes, I did. Um, and something that's very interesting, I was actually supposed to become a doctor, which is a bit far from what I do today. As you know, I lead the luxury division at Facebook and Instagram. Um, but, uh, you know, coming from a Nigerian family, the classic uh, expectations from the family is that you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're an engineer. Uh, and I thought that that was what I wanted to become because my aunt was also a doctor. We went through the different courses, the biology, the chemistry, and actually was working in a hospital as an intern. And I remember I was doing an overnight shift once. It was from midnight to 8 a.m., so really great, in the emergency <laughs> room. And I remember at the end of the shift just driving home, and I said, you know what? This is from someone for someone else. This is not for me. This is not where I see myself. And it was a very scary realization because that meant that I wasn't sure as to where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. 
But I was sure enough that this was not the direction for me and that I needed to figure out what would come next. Because you were also a Bill Gates Millennium Scholar. So it's a scholarship that's awarded to high achieving ethnic minority students. Yes. Um, so I was wondering if you were you a grafter or were you naturally academic? I was naturally very academic. So when I was a kid, just so you know, I was very timid, very shy. I hardly spoke to people. I had always a book in my hand. I was always reading, always uh, escaping to this, to an imaginary world. Um, and I remember one um, holiday, on Christmas holiday, I received, I see it very clearly, a red typewriter as a gift uh, for Christmas. And I used that to start to write some of the stories that I would read, um, that I would read about in the novels that I read at the time. And so I was a very shy kid, very timid. But I think what that taught me in terms of the person I am today is that I observe people a lot. I observe behaviors because when I was young, I tried to observe people to figure out how to not be so shy, um, which means that I have very natural connection and I can really try to figure out who people are, what their interests are. Uh, so that's something that turned into a positive today. Is that typewriter something that would go into your cabinet? <laughs> it is something that would go into my cabinet. There. Absolutely. Yes. Like the idea of a red typewriter. Yes. Sounds very cool. So that would be your second object. That would, would be my say? second object. Yes. And then from there, you joined Facebook in 2006. Mm -hmm. So you've been there for a while. Yes. It was probably, it's changed probably a lot in the time since you've been there. So. What was it like when you first joined the company? So I joined Facebook, it was a happy accident that I joined Facebook. I remember I was, I was at Stanford again, I was trying to figure out what I would do and what my, my future, what my direction would be. And I remember I was taking, uh, I was doing a master's in sociology at Stanford and I figured, hey, you know what? I'm going to need a job to go along with this uh, master's program. So I reached out to one of my friends who's actually still at Facebook today. His name's uh, James Mitchell, who's a good friend of mine. We've known each other since we were 18. And I said, hey, I think Facebook could be interesting. Um, it's a cool site because at the time it was just fun and nice and cool. Uh, are you hiring? I said, yes. I sent my resume. And I remember on the day of my interview, I had three interviews. At the time, they were really, it was a small company, 150 people just a few teams with engineering, HR operations, etc. And I remember I had three interviews on one day um, with folks that I still know today. And I was driving home and I got the call that I got the job. It's not so easy today when one interviews at yeah. Facebook, for sure. That was 12 years ago. Um, but uh, it was really, it was something that I thought it was really interesting. It was really cool. Um, and so I saw the opportunity and I took it. And how has your role evolved from what you were doing when you first started working there to what you do now? It has evolved vastly. I would say I've had four key roles um, at Facebook. The first role I mentioned I was on the operations team and our job was to make sure that people could access Facebook, uh, to could use the site and make sure that from an operational aspect, things were in order and, and everything, and uh, one could use the site uh, really cleanly and easily. And then I became more interested in the engineering side. I'm not an engineer, don't, I haven't taken any computer science courses, but product development was something that really interested me. And it just so happened that this interest came at the time when we were building our ads business at Facebook. And so I was a product marketing manager working with our engineers as well as with our sales and business teams to essentially figure out what kind of uh, products we needed to build to respond to our clients' needs. So that's the second job. <laughs> 
third job uh, was on the media partnerships team. So where I led uh, partnerships with public figures and also brands who wanted to learn how to communicate on Facebook to create pages, to create profiles, what kind of content to post, how could we make different programming around Fashion Week, etc., which I really, really loved. And that I was still based in California at that time. And then I said, you know what? I want to go to New York. Let's see what kind of opportunities could be in New York uh, within the Facebook office. And that's where I took, I would say, the biggest job within Facebook that changed absolutely my life. I was the chief of staff to Carolyn Everson, who's still at Facebook today, who is the global vice president of Global Marketing Solutions, which essentially is the business organization. And I was her chief of staff and I was exposed to strategy, to C-level conversations, to really understand what it meant to be a leader, which was an absolutely great experience of two and a half years. And that is what took me to where I am today, where I'm living in Paris, leading up our luxury division globally uh, for Facebook and Instagram. How, what's your personal relationship to fashion like? Um, is it something you were always interested in? Absolutely. Did you come to it? Yeah. yeah, there was something There was something innate about it. I was always interested in I think my sister and I, we were naturally always interested in this world. I remember my sister, for example, when my parents would buy her dolls, she would take off their clothes, cut them up, restyle them, and completely change the look of, look of her dolls. And so she is more on the creative side. And I was um, really quite fascinated and still am to this date more on the craftsmanship aspect, uh, really understand how the luxury and fashion goods are, 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 are developed and produced. And I also have an innate sense of strategy. And so it's something that really just come together quite, uh, quite perfectly in my life today. So now you live in Paris, yes. which is where a lot of the um, biggest luxury fashion companies are based. Absolutely. Do you spend a lot of time speaking to them? Are you based there for that reason? Yeah, so it's exactly why we, not only I am based there, but the global hub, uh, the global luxury hub for Facebook is based in Paris. And the decision was very precise because that's exactly where the key this, key brands, key groups are, the decision makers are. And so it was important to make sure that we were next to them, that we are the ones engaging directly with them and helping them understand what it means to communicate and build their brands on our platform. So personally, I moved to Paris in January of 2015. It's been almost four years. I can't believe it. <laughs> I barely spoke a hint of French at the time. <laughs> yeah, because I read you speak like five languages. Yeah, four. Well, I think I think French really uh, took a lot of energy for me. And um, no, but it was it was it was a challenging experience. The first two years learning French and also learning what it means to really build trust and relationships with our luxury partners, because it's an industry that doesn't just function on pure business, quote unquote. Trust over time is really critical. I was going to ask you about that. I'm really interested to know how you found that they respond differently to you over the years, because obviously Facebook is a new player in this whole field of, of advertising and, and as, a, as a platform where um, luxury advertisers can show their show what they do um, and I was wondering what your thoughts were on that yeah our approach really has been to make sure that we respect the codes of the of luxury luxury codes because it's really important um, my goal is not to make uh, to convince a partner to do something that's against their natural um, savoir-faire and their natural heritage and so what we've really focused on on working on is how can we help them in the creative evolution and creative adaptation especially on Instagram what does it mean to take advantage of 
now the really rich tools that we've built in the past four years to communicate a brand story. Can you give an example of what those kind of tools are? Sure, no problem. Uh, so one thing that's been really important to, to our luxury partners is how the brand is represented and how the brand is positioned next to other kind of content on our platform. And so we have a lot of different immersive experiences which allow them to essentially take out the entire mobile screen um, and capture a consumer's attention. So either via stories or we have what we call instant experiences and stories and newsfeed where you can really plug into a world that's uh, a world of content, excuse me, that's photos, videos, carousels, combination of content that really allows to tell a longer form story. What's an example of a brand that sticks in your mind as having done something really cool and innovative on Facebook recently? Yeah, so I mean, we work uh, certainly with um, with the entire sector, and so our one of some of the leading brands with whom we work are, of course, uh, Dior, Louis Vuitton, Chanel, um, Cartier. We really want to make sure that we are supporting uh, their own good French pronunciation. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I try. Yeah. At this point, I really have no excuse, <laughs> even if I'm speaking French or not. Um, so yes, absolutely. Pronunciation is key. Uh, and if you think about uh, innovation, I'll just give a, a couple of, uh, of examples. So I just mentioned instant experiences where brands are able to essentially uh, build a story. And if I think of, uh, for example, uh, Dior, which is actually launched about a month ago, Facebook Stories ads in Facebook stories. And so Dior was a key uh, beta tester for this format, really allowed us to say, what does it mean to communicate? There it is in stories on Instagram, now stories on Facebook to even to, to broaden their reach. And then the last one I would say is there's this new world of um, augmented reality. And so we're working with our partners to build new experiences, different filters, uh, augmented reality. We have um, Dior that built a sunglasses filter, Chanel built one as well, to allow people to try on their sunglasses without leaving the comfort of their home. Wow, yep. whole new world. Yeah, exactly. Um, and obviously Facebook is such a massive company now and so famous, and I was just wondering, how has the recent difficulties the companies face with regards to fake news and so on affected your role and what you're doing? I would say definitely I spend more time than I did maybe you know, a year even, uh, uh, nine months ago, more time making sure that we're uh, very well educated and very in tune as to the um, priorities of our clients. Our partners are very much focused on making sure that their data, consumer data especially, is uh, protected to the maximum on our platforms. And so I spent time with our policy teams, the legal teams, because I need to be able to speak in a very precise and informed man manner to our clients as to what's the work we're doing to protect people on our platforms. What are we doing on safety? We're double the size of our team, our safety teams and security teams to 20,000 from 10,000. What are we doing to make sure that there are no uh, fewer imp imposters on our platforms? For example, in six months from October 2017 until May uh, this year, we deleted 1.3 billion fake accounts. Wow. So this is a, a new world that's important for me to stay plugged into and to stay up to date on. Let's get back to the cabinet. <laughs> what is the third thing you're gonna put in there? So the third thing I'm going to put in there, um, again, a lot of it is referring back to childhood. I realized when I was making my list that it was really quite childhood uh, focused. It's a fruit. It's a cashew fruit, to be specific. But, and why a cashew fruit? Uh, when I was young, again, my grandfather, everything is really going, in, going um, in full circle, had an orchard. And I remember 
that there were the summer days that were really just simple, free, lighthearted. And um, my sister and I would be in his orchard uh, trying to pick and eat cashew fruits. And I remember specifically, my mom told us that we couldn't ruin our nice church dresses because apparently cashew fruit juice stains clothing. And so I remember this, uh, you're going to carefree summer with family eating cashew fruits. And that was when things seemed to be so simple in life where my biggest challenge of the day is making sure that I don't get fruit juice stain on my nice new dress. And so that's something that I definitely uh, uh, add to the cabinet. I think it's interesting, these childhood things that people put in, and a lot of people seem to be choosing things from from when they were growing up. Yeah. I think those they're, they're such formative That makes memories. us who we are today. I think so, yeah. yeah. I also wanted to ask you about community. Mm. Um, um, specific, well, I know you've, in the past, you've built up communities, and I think you built up a, quite a successful community of your own around fashion. Yes. Um, I wanted to know. I'm I'm really interested to know. Are there communities on Facebook that most that aren't that well known that you know about? Um, and what are they? How can people access them? What are the discussions that are taking place? For sure, there. Um, you. I don't know. You may or may not know this, but uh, it's a it's actually an interesting point that you're asking about communities because we actually changed the mission of Facebook to focus on communities in June of uh, 2017. Um, why? Because we want to, we now understand with a more, with a deeper meaning, the impact that we have on people's lives and, and building communities, especially in the world where there's so much negativity um, happening. And the way that we do that especially is via groups on Facebook. And so to speak of a world that most people don't know really exists, there are an incredible amount of groups that are created on Facebook to either discuss certain topics, either sell products between people in a certain neighborhood, either to create uh, communities um, around different topics. One that I um, that I love and is definitely very personal to me is a group focused on Nigerian women. Uh, it's about over a million uh, people are in the group and you have to be invited by another Nigerian woman to join. And the reason why I say that, so now I'll speak to my fourth item, <laughs> uh, is one of my favorite authors that I'm sure you'll know is Chimamanda Adichie, who wrote Americana. And so I would absolutely put Americana into the cabinet. I will say that I was a bit late in reading it because I only read it this past summer. I knew I had to read it. I knew that the story would connect with me. And I kid you not, when I read it, I felt like I, as though I was reliving my life. It was my life on paper. Wow. And there was just a very kinetic and uh, intense connection to her story, to her experience, um, especially, you know, when I'm living in Paris away from home, quote unquote, uh, it was really, really, um, it was really, really pow powerful to read. Is she, is she a member of this group? I believe so. <laughs> I don't want to say, I don't want to quote. Can you if she's not, she should be. Yeah. What's the name of the group? <laughs> and so it's, that's, I uh, keep it. Oh, right. Secret. Yeah. Okay. So it's really by invitation. Yeah. What about fashion publications mm. and how you stay in, how you stay up to date with fashion and what's going on in the world? I'm interested to know exactly how you do it because people, you know, it's so dispersed at the moment. Yeah. The way that people consume things. I know a lot of people get their news. An increasing number of people get their news through Facebook and a lot of and, and, and Instagram. Mm -hmm. um, some people use different kinds of platforms. Um, some people go directly to a newspaper or a magazine website. Right. Um, how do you do it? Yeah, especially in this world where there are just so many different touch points uh, and receptors of content, I've had to 
be quite disciplined with myself to say, you know what, um, I have so many, so much stimulation coming from different parts and different from notifications, from articles, from websites. First, I think about how I organize my day. And my day, especially during the week, I try to take the very first hour of the day, no meetings, no emails, no, uh, no disturb, uh, nothing to disturb me. And I use that to reflect or use it to read. Um, because for me, it's, um, it's an ongoing process to make sure that I'm nourished, to make sure that I know what's going on, especially in the sector. And so some of the different sites that I read, of, I'm sure you know them as well. Uh, I read the daily uh, Business of Fashion newsletter for sure, key articles there. Um, Luxury Daily as well is, is, a, is a key one, Luxury Society as well as Perspectives. And so just in kind of getting my daily input of information, I can say, okay, I know when I'm sitting in front of a, a client or a partner, I know and I can speak to very specifically the world in which they're living. If their stock went down overnight, I know it. And so I can be more pertinent and more sensitive to that as well. Um, and personally, again, this is my this is my life. This is my passion. This is not just a job. I live this world. Um, I, I dress this world. Um, and it's uh, and this is really, um, I have the best of both worlds because I'm able to really translate my passion and what I do naturally anyway into what I built as a career. What about the demands of digital activity on people's time? How do you manage that? Yeah, I would say I'm personally, I set restrictions for myself because it is very easy, all too easy, for example, to spend 30 minutes in bed at night on Instagram before you go to bed um, and scanning and tapping through to see to see the different kinds of content. So on a personal point of view, I really try to take note of that to, to certain aspects, taking off notifications to make sure that I'm, if I'm in a meeting, if I'm in a conversation, if I'm at lunch, I'm not disturbed by the constant ping. So that's personally for me. Uh, from a platform point of view, Facebook and Instagram have created tools where you can see your time spent per day on the platform and you can get an it's alert. It's scary when you see that. Yeah. yeah. And so you don't realize it. And so you can kind of get this alert where you can say it's almost like an alarm. Um, when you've passed X number of minutes per day, you can get an alert stating, okay, you've reached your daily limit. Um, keep this in mind <laughs> and that's also a mental signal where you say okay i've got my fill because our focus really is on not just quantitative time spent on the platforms but qualitative um spending four hours each day on the platforms but not getting content that's relevant or pertinent doesn't add value to someone's life What else are you going to put into your cabinet? I can't remember what number we're at now. Is that four? Or I five? think that was four. four. Yeah. So I thought about this one a lot because um, I mean I'm in the, I'm in this tech world. I'm in this innovation world, and I have been for for twelve years. Even though it was a happy accident that I stumbled into it, but it's something that's uh, um, that's changed the direction of my life. And I also thought about the work that I do with luxury. I will always have my classic luxury pieces and, you know, the items that I love. And that's such, uh, as? such, <laughs> as, uh, such as, well, if I think about my very. I should say you're wearing a pair of very fabulous Hermes boots. Yeah. Can I say that? <laughs> yeah, Hermes is definitely uh, one of my uh, favorite, favorite brands to wear personally um, because I find the, um, the style to be classic and timeless and that fits right into my personal style i'm not really the one who's going to try a five trains a season um just because it's my natural preference but yes i always love um 
classic items that last a long mm-hmm. time. Um, but if I get back to the last item, which is a little bit adjacent, um, I remember very specifically the day in 2007, and again, I was at Facebook at this time, when the iPhone was launched. And for me, we were such uh, fanboys and fangirls at the time, watching the, uh, the um, Steve Jobs give this kind of famous speech that I think um, most people have seen. And I am, for me, and this fresh new time of Silicon Valley um, innovation, uh, it was really something I thought, wow, this is a tool, a tool, it's not even a tool, it's, um, now it's a part of our lives. Um, and for me, you know, I, I'm here sitting with you. I have two phones that I use uh, almost every single day. I don't even want to know how much time I spend on it, on it every day. But um, this really is something that you can, no one, I think, can deny that they're going to put their mobile phone in their cabinet. <laughs> Speaking of um, tech things and tech industries, um, obviously the tech, Silicon Valley is famous for underrepresenting women in that area, mm. and you are a woman working in the tech slash fashion industry. Yeah. Um, do you keep a close eye on that, and how do you feel about it? Yeah, I would actually take the subject a bit wider in terms of diversity overall. I'm very much a proud, you know, black Nigerian American uh, woman with a very international experience. And often, very, very often, I find myself being the only one in the room. And so for me, I've had to really ask myself the question as to how I want to have an impact on this uh, really key and important topic. And I do so in a few ways that I think are really quite practical. um, And I'm going to help especially the next generations come uh, uh, after me. I didn't have role models who were able to guide me. And so what I try to do now is mentor um, two to three people, because after that, I don't have much time, but two to three people who I believe have potential. And so I have two to three people that I mentor on a consistent basis at Facebook or at Facebook Today, who I consider to be young rising stars. And since I didn't have that person to really guide me, I would love for them to see that it's possible. Um, I built out this direction because I believed in it and because I took risks and thankfully I took the right risks, Um, but I didn't do it alone and I want to be able to also create that path for young, smart, intelligent, diverse women who are looking to and seeking to build their own impact and their own career path as well. That's great. And what about the changing, the big changes that are happening at the moment across all of the culture, but in particular in this instance with relation to fashion, um, I'm talking about um, changes about the ideal of beauty. So whereas before it was common to see a very slim white person um, represented as a kind of attractive ideal, now that's changing and being opened up. Um, Do you find people speaking to you about that a lot when you meet them, when you're going to your meetings with these luxury brands? Do you see change? I think we're in a world wherein uh, status quo is no longer accepted by people. People, consumers and people now have tools and ways of communicating that they didn't have 10, uh, even 12 years ago. Um, you know, I talked about the mobile phone. That gives you a way to communicate and share your opinion in a way that didn't exist before. What do I think that means today? I think that's created a consumer who is no longer willing to just accept one point of view, but wants to make sure that their interests and their preferences are being catered to. 
if you look at speaking of the this kind of revolution the beauty revolution and the fact that uh, since the kind of blockbuster launch of uh, fancy cosmetics you have brands who in a lot of cases are already catering to women of different skin colors but now that is a really key focus to make sure that no matter who you are you can be beautiful you can use uh, you can uh, find the products that work for your skin color that work for your beauty your version of beauty hmm. and finally um i wanted to ask you this question after i was polling people in the office that matches fashion about what they want what they wanted me to ask you and hmm. somebody said that she wanted to know about your thoughts about the future of luxury fashion um and shopping how you see that changing how you how you see a younger consumer mm-hmm. um behaving yeah What's going to happen? I mean, I'm sure people ask you this all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. What's your crystal ball? For sure. Well, the focus on quality, I don't believe, is going to change. Luxury, uh, the, the core of, of luxury is uh, quality, the highest craftsmanship and quality. So that's always going to be the desire uh, for consumers, younger or, or older. That said, I think the channels and the way in which um, people are able to get access to these products are going to change. Um, I just mentioned in, in a world where you know a brand was able to dictate one way how uh, what the trends are and what should and what people should desire. I think that consumers are going to get to a point where they're going to want one of a kind, one of a kind because anyone, not anyone, a lot of people can have the latest luxury bag. I think that there is a shift towards personalization, making sure that you are the only one that has access to this product. There's also a shift toward experiences. People want to spend time on experiences that, that, that they enjoy, that enrich uh, their lives. And I mean, we can't ignore it because here we are, matches fashion, uh, online and being able to tie in the online and in-store experience is critical. My, I myself as a consumer, I love walking into a store where I walk in, my preferences are already known uh, if, if I save something on uh, online, I could find the product in store as well. And so there's not this disconnect between shopping online and shopping in store. Which do I prefer to do? It depends on what mood I'm in. I'll still do both. So definitely the in-store experience is not going to uh, be uh, thrown out of the window. But now we have consumers who are busy, women on the move, who want to shop when they want, who want to receive their products right away. And I think that this um, the catering to this new woman, she's an existing woman, she's already here, advocating to her needs are really critical. What about the kids who are shopping on, who are promoting things on Instagram via um, closed groups or WhatsApp groups? How do luxury brands uh, access them? So, um, sorry, I just want to make sure, in closed groups, I mean, having conversations and sharing different products. So they might be promoting a, an event or a sale mm-hmm. or, or having a discussion, but it's on a private group that you have to be invited to join. Okay, got it. Um, well, in, in that case, um, I think that this is where the work is to be done on brand desire. So it's even before people start communicating in those private groups, because they're private for a reason, because people want to communicate between people and uh, communities that they know. So um, the question that I would pose is, how do you drive brand desire on an ongoing basis and for the long term, so that when one thinks of high quality leather goods or the best uh, little back black dress or the best knee high boots, that a specific brand uh, comes to mind. Okay, that's great. Well, Maureen, thank you so much for joining us thank today. You. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.
That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website, and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man, and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.